0: Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we find out how technology is helping us better understand and listen to nature, and even learn to communicate with it. Just how close are we to a zoological version of Google Translate? Toronto Star reporter and author Joanna Chu joins us to talk about a recent trip to Taiwan and how the island is coping with an increasingly aggressive China on its doorstep. Saskatchewan's Minister of Justice and Attorney General joins us to explain the Saskatchewan First Act introduced yesterday. It aims to unilaterally amend the Canadian Constitution to say the province has jurisdiction over its natural resources, something it actually already has. So what is the rationale here? But first, British Columbia announced a whole new payment model for family doctors this week to try to resolve what continues to be a chronic and acute shortage in the province. What impact could it have? Will it actually lure physicians from other parts of the country? First up today, like many places in Canada, where I am in BC, finding a family doctor is next to impossible. Almost a million people in this province don't have one, about five, six million across the country right now, apparently. The shortage is, the shortage is chronic and acute all at once, so a lot of people are taking notice of a new payment model for family physicians announced by the province of BC this week, which will see them go from amongst the lowest paid in the country to really near the top of the wage scale. It's not just about money, though. It also revamps the existing system built around a fee-for-service model to instead consider factors such as the amount of time a doctor spends with a patient, the number of patients a doctor sees daily, administrative costs, which are a big deal for family doctors, And the number of patients a doctor has in their practice will all be taken into account. So it's really far more comprehensive. Of course, the big challenge here is to retain existing family doctors. That is an issue in BC and elsewhere, but also to attract new graduates into the field. A lot of people don't like to go into family medicine, but they're expecting interest to um, spike a bit in January. They don't know how much. There are no specific targets about how many poor people in BC will have a family doctor and by when. Still, some such as Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley um, are urging their province, the Premier Daniel Smith, there to bring in a similar pay bump to prevent Alberta, uh, currently the highest paid in the country, from being lured next door. It's not just about the money, there's other stuff going on too. So just how much of an impact will this new plan have? Can it be a template for other provinces or will it simply attract much needed family physicians away from places where they are now. The College of Family Physicians of Canada is the professional organization that represents more than 42,000 members across the country. And joining me now is Dr. Lawrence Lowe, who's executive director and CEO of the college. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Ben. So this has been, a. Mu- I mean, I'm in BC, this has been a much talked about issue, the shortage of family doctors here. What did you make of this new payment model that is being proposed?
1: I think it's a really positive, uh, you know, step in in the right direction. Uh, we know that uh, family medicine is the cornerstone uh, of the healthcare system in, in every province and territory in Canada. Uh, when people are experiencing challenges uh, you know, with their health, uh, one of the first places they will turn is to a family doctor. For so long, uh, family medicine has really been challenged. They've run as a small business. There's huge administrative and overhead uh, burdens. Um, you know, remuneration hasn't kept pace. Uh, so I think there's a lot to like in the new announcement that's been out there that will hopefully uh, shore up the work of comprehensive family doctors and improve access to care and also quality of care uh, for patients.
0: What's interesting here, I think there's always a lot of attention paid to dollar figures when it comes to these sorts of models. Clearly, in BC, uh, money was an issue, but it feels like it's more than that, too. There's a certain certain awareness or recognition that running a family practice is about a lot more than just seeing patients.
1: Absolutely. And I think to the extent that we can try to get to a place where family doctors are are able to focus as much as possible on caring for patients. I think that would be the ideal, especially if they're surrounded by a multidisciplinary team. But I think the announcement seems to be a move in that direction. Recognizes the need for uh, support uh, to hire administrative supports for all the work, the forms, etc. Uh, that family doctors uh, deal with. Um, I think there's also, uh, you know, a recognition as well that family medicine is much more complex nowadays. It's not necessarily uh, as as simple as uh, you know a one problem one visit uh, kind of model of payment that has been used for many for many years uh, for many decades in British Columbia as well as elsewhere in Canada. Uh, so you know, just uh, being able to provide remuneration for the time Time it takes to really navigate the complex needs that patients have. I think that's also a really positive thing that we saw in the announcement uh, recently.
0: It does beg the question considering what a crisis uh, it is out here, why it took so long to come up with this this kind of a solution. Any ideas why, why it's taken this long to sort of try to tackle what was obviously a, a long la- a, you know sort of an enduring issue uh, for family physicians specifically well, in this case in British Columbia.
2: Well,
1: I liken it this way: to you know, family doctors are often out in the community. They're trying to forestall illnesses from becoming more severe. To try to you know work with patients so that they can keep people healthier for longer. And I think the challenge with that is is that work uh, doesn't go as well noticed as you know some of the really amazing things that our specialist colleagues do. You know, in terms of restoring sight or you know bringing people back from cardiac arrest, etc. Uh, but the reality is that these are the everyday miracles that family doctors are performing uh, day in and day out in British Columbia across the country where, you know, people have questions about their health, people are noticing that things aren't quite right, and they just need to actually get to someone who's got a breadth of knowledge uh, and also is hopefully now going to be surrounded by a team that will allow them to address uh, some of their health concerns, uh, some of their chronic diseases, whatever they might be facing, to be able to address it at a time where it's not necessarily severe enough to go to hospital and so that it can actually be managed in the community rather than within the acute care system.
0: Uh, How quickly... Could something like this, a new model, for instance, start to reverse some of the trends that we've seen over many, many years in BC and, and elsewhere, of course. I mean, family medicine is tough. Uh, there's more money to be made elsewhere. Uh, there's certainly options for for family physicians. As you well know, you were a family physician yourself. Um, do, how quickly do you think this may s- solve, the, or solve the problem is probably a, a heavy word, but how how long do you think it'll take for this to make a difference?
1: Well, I mean, it, 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 you know, obviously the devil is in details, and uh, and I think the announcement uh, doesn't necessarily specify any specific timelines. But broadly speaking, uh, what there are two things that you want to avoid here. First of all, we know that there's a significant backlog in the acute care system now. And that's just as a result of uh, the pandemic having wreaked havoc on our healthcare system for uh, the better part of the last two and a half years. You don't want to add to that backlog because you you, you want to make sure that primary care family doctors, together with uh, you know their multidisciplinary teams, are able to address uh, healthcare matters uh, in the community before they get worse and add to that backlog. Um, so so first of all, you know I think getting uh, family medicine uh, you know supported and resourced is, is it should be a priority uh, if nothing else than to help the acute care backlog. But similar to that. Um, in order to do that quickly, you're going to need to retain family docs. We know, we all know that you need to uh, train more family doctors and, you know, bring in, and, and excite more, uh, you know, young physicians about joining family medicine. But in the meantime, you need to act quickly uh, to retain family doctors, especially in rural and underserved communities where they're such a valuable resource. Um, so I think the sooner that this gets implemented, the sooner those supports start to flow. Uh, the more likely uh, both family doctors will start to feel relief, and then also patients will be able to see their access maintained and hopefully optimized.
0: I'm speaking with Dr. Lawrence Lowe. He's Executive Director and CEO of the College of Family Physicians of Canada. We're talking about an announcement this week in British Columbia uh, that uh, revamps essentially the way that family physicians are compensated and approached in many ways in this province. There is an acute lack of family physicians in British Columbia right now. The province knew this was a big deal. It infects the entire healthcare system here, as Dr. Lowe has been pointing out, it is often the first stop. It's where diseases are caught and prevented, as opposed to the sort of chronic illnesses that often find people heading into the emergency care system. When we come back, a bit about what this might mean for provinces outside of British Columbia, because already there's been talk. Uh, Alberta's NDP opposition leader, Rachel Notley, yesterday was already saying this should be a wake-up call for that province, even though their family doctors are well-paid by Canadian standards. Uh, When we come back, we'll talk about that. Dr. Lawrence Lowe is with us this half hour. He's Executive Director and CEO of the College of Family Physicians of Canada. We're talking about British Columbia's uh, new payment plan, uh, new plan generally for family physicians, which would see their compensation increase uh, significantly, but also some of the conditions in which they work, how they're paid, um, and also their working conditions appreciated more, more flexible, uh, and uh, I think in many ways, a better um, nod to what the reality of running a family practice is in 2022 compared to years past. Dr. Lowe, I'm sure you've noticed that other, uh, you know, opposition politicians particularly, but elsewhere, people are taking notice of what BC has done. Will this create, I mean, there's limited numbers of family physicians out there. Will this create some sort of competition or at least brain drain from other provinces now that one province has sort of pushed this new idea to the forefront?
1: Well, you know, I, I think uh, it's it's still early days, right? And obviously, we'll all be very interested to see uh, what uh, transpires and emerges out of the recent announcement in British Columbia. But, you know, I think there is still opportunity for us to, you know, all, all together across the country, look at how and what lessons can be learned. Uh, you know, I think for us at the College of Family Physicians of Canada, uh, we have been for long advocating for family physicians to be uh, to receive uh, support for administrative tasks to have those administrative tasks even uh, taken from them altogether been uh, advocating for uh, support from multidisciplinary teams recognizing that uh, you know family doctors uh, are 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 able to uh, work more effectively and care for uh, patients more effectively if they've got, you know, physician assistants, uh, uh, nurse practitioners, uh, other allied health uh, working alongside them. So really making sure that some of the ideas and concepts that come out of uh, what's happening in British Columbia is probably what we're more excited about than uh, that, you know, that, that this could actually potentially uh, spark more interest in, in these sort of more effective models of care across the country.
0: Yeah I imagine other other provinces will be looking to see how people react but given the number given the shortages of family physicians just about everywhere and, and I mean you do represent uh, tens of thousands of them is it is it um is it fair to say that some would be attracted simply by the better conditions that that British Columbia may offer is, is that how family medicine works do you simply pack your bags and go somewhere else or is it more are you more rooted than that I guess it's it's a basic question but but I'm I'm curious
1: for sure. I mean, the the issue of physician and, and healthcare professional migration is 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 a very complex one, right? Because I think similar to other professions, uh, many people may be uh, attracted to various localities uh, based on uh, you know personal uh, contacts uh, and, and relationships, uh, preferences, even up and beyond uh, just the remuneration uh, alone. But I think certainly. What we are advocating for across the country, uh, you know, not just in British Columbia, uh, is that this practice environment, these sort of supports in terms of uh, better remuneration uh, and addressing complex care, addressing administrative burden, addressing multidisciplinary teams, uh, that needs to be something that happens elsewhere. So uh, there's no doubt that certainly some physicians uh, may be attracted on that based on. Uh, on on the practice environment, but at the same time you know they they will likely be balancing all sorts of different factors as anyone would as in in choosing a place to live and work
0: yeah I guess a rising tide lifts all boats is the hope on your on your side right I mean um has, has it been has it been i mean I, I know you haven't been in this position for a very long time but but for the college itself has it been um a long slog trying to get this recognized that this is potentially the b- I mean, we don't want to overstate what BC is doing, but that this was the kind of approach that was needed to make sure that family doctors stayed in place and stayed where they were and that those retiring were that there was backups for those who were retiring and so forth.
1: Well, you're absolutely right, Ben. We we don't definitely don't want to overstate this. I think this is a step in the right direction, but there are many more things that need to be done uh, to shore up our uh, in, in our family medicine uh, system uh, from coast to coast to coast across the country. Uh, not least of which is, is uh, really trying to address, you know, entry into family medicine residency programs, and getting more people excited in family medicine, and then, of course, uh, really trying to retain uh, family doctors in some of our more rural and remote areas uh, as well as across the country within comprehensive care. Uh, with multidisciplinary teams, I think that's all going to be work that needs to be addressed uh, to some degree by policy and by by governments across the country. But but you know, like 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 you say, it, it has been a challenge uh, for a long time for family medicine to really uh, demonstrate its value, and that's why family medicine now, in the wake of the pandemic, is really a lot of family docs are burnt out, a lot of family docs are just packing in, retiring, and they're narrowing their scope of practice. And that's because for too long, for so many decades, uh, you know, uh, family doctors have uh, sort of held the line, Uh, remuneration hasn't kept pace, the administrative tasks, the complexity of patients have have just grown. And that's why the college has always been out there trying to say, you know, look, we, we know that. The access for people to get to specialists, to get you know, their, their their healthcare questions answered in the community without having to go to the hospital, that starts with primary care and starts with family doctors. And I think it's, it's positive to see this announcement of BC. It means that that message is, is starting to be heard.
0: Yeah, I mean, it always strikes me every time you see, uh, uh, you know, mostly a local news article about a family f- physician retiring or quitting or going elsewhere. Just how many people, how many people are left out when that happens with nowhere to go? I mean, it's 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 hard to over it's hard to overstate just how devastating it can be for a community when family doctors start to leave, and it just always surprised me how long it took everyone to figure that out.
1: I think the reality is uh, an ounce prevention is better than a pound of cure, and we all know uh, we all know the old adage. The reality is that the more you invest in family medicine and primary care, the more you invest in public health as well in terms of creating healthier community contexts the less disease you're going to have, the healthier people are going to be for the long term. And that's going to reduce and relieve the strain that we're seeing on our acute care system.
0: Well, Dr. Lowe, thank you so much for your time. We'll leave it at that.
1: Thanks so much for taking me today.
0: And we'll end off tonight with something pretty fascinating. I mean, when we talk about walking out into nature and sort of hearing, I mean, you can hear some noise, but not really. It's pretty quiet, right? Well, it turns out, truthfully, Uh, It's just because we can't hear. We can't hear what's going on around us. And for a long time, the scientific community barely acknowledged that all these sounds existed. But advances in modern technology not only keep us away from nature because we're stuck inside playing with our phones, uh, but they also allow us to take a far deeper dive into those sounds using tools like drones and tiny microphones and artificial intelligence. Uh, Have a listen to some of what is actually out there. These are bats. Yeah, we know that sound. You know, apparently bats have names for each other. Bats are super smart. Anyway, we'll get into that in a second. These are the bees. Now, keep in mind, these, these, this is communication. This isn't just buzzing around. This, they're, the bats are communicating. The bees are communicating, and so are the elephants. Now, keep in mind, uh, what we're listening to here is not what we'd be able to pick up. These are sounds we would not be able to hear under normal circumstances. They've been amplified for our purposes. But when you listen to them, and we obviously do that, do this with the help of, of, of artificial intelligence, we you could start to detect patterns that reveal both the incredible complexity of communication that goes on around us, often outside our capacity to hear it, uh, but also the ability, perhaps for us one day, to communicate with nature, to understand what's being said, and to communicate back. It's all very, very interesting. Uh, Someone else who found it very interesting is Karen Backer. She's a professor in the Department of Geography at UBC, a fellow at the Harvard-Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, and she's author of a book called The Sounds of Life, How Digital Technology is Bringing Us Closer to the Worlds of Animals and Plants, and she joins us now. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Uh, you often point this out, but we, we so often think of technology as sort of removing us from nature, and yet you so correctly point out that in many ways, it also helps us better understand uh, the world around us. I
3: mean, digital technology can be deployed as a useful tool or as a, a weapon. And of course, there are many good reasons to be concerned about digital tech today. However, this book does open readers' ears to a new set of possibilities basically using digital technology to enable us to listen to the previously hidden sounds of nature, animals, even plants. That part of it,
0: too, is remarkable. I mean, what is it, because you've mentioned it, and I I use the term, what are we looking for? And that kind of speaks to to our sight bias right off the bat. But better yet, what are we listening for?
3: Yeah, so on the point about sight bias, I mean, Western science and humans also just privileged sight over sound but we're a very visually oriented species and so only recently have we realized that a huge range of species non-humans are making sound above and below human hearing range above the top end of our hearing range we've got ultrasonic this is the realm of bats and dolphins but also moths other insects rodents Uh, Tarsiers, which are are our long-lost primate cousins, they're all making ultrasound. Plants actually emit ultrasound. Who knew? At the other end of our hearing range, infrasound, these are these long, low, slow sound waves that are really powerful and travel long distances. They can move through soil and stone into walls. They can move through buildings. This is the realm of elephants and whales and hippopotami, Um, many many animals can hear infrasound and amazingly the planet itself makes infrasound if you could hear in these frequencies you might hear a tornado or a thunderstorm far away you might hear a calving glacier You, you might hear the sound of ocean waves colliding over continental shelves creating a sort of drumming heartbeat for our planet so animals can hear this sort of continuous symphony of nature's sounds to which we are largely oblivious.
0: Yeah. When we talk about something being dead quiet, it's just because we can't hear the the absolute uh, you know cacophony that's going on around us. Right. That's the, uh, it's an interesting point. What are we listening? How do we cut through all that noise? I, I imagine through digital technology, we can listen, we can hear lots, but what are, what do we want to hear? What are we trying to ultimately, what are we trying to hear out there?
3: Great question. And just for background for your listeners, the digital technologies that are being used and that I describe in the book, the sounds of life in in detail, are pretty new. Um, Listening to nature is, of course, a long and, and venerable tradition. But in order to record these sounds, basically, you needed a whole pile of equipment. You know, you could stuff it into an entire minivan and still have to tie stuff on the roof. But only in the past decade have we been able to use essentially um, recorders that are smaller than your smartphone. They're cheap, they're automated, they're portable. And scientists have been installing these miniature and waterproof recorders everywhere on the planet, from the depths of the ocean to the highest mountaintop, from the Arctic to the Amazon. And so they're hearing an incredible amount of sound. Now, the question you asked was, okay, amidst that deluge of sound, right, these are, you know, millions of vocalizations that we're now recording, what are we listening for? So one of the things that scientists are listening for are complex communication patterns that convey information, really ecologically complex information. So we've discovered, for example, that many species have individual names. Bats have individual names. Um, We knew dolphins did, but we didn't know that bats did. Um, We've also discovered that many species are really good at precisely describing their environment to one another. And we we didn't realize this before we started doing all this digital recording and analyzing the patterns with artificial intelligence. So a, a really cool example is elephants. It turns out that elephants have a really specific signal for honeybee. They're terrified of honeybees that get into their trunks and ears. And the pretty much the only thing that terrifies the mighty African elephant is, a, is the tiny African honeybee. But elephants also have very specific signals for humans. So they have one signal that is for a dangerous human, a male hunter. They have another signal that's for a non-threatening male human. And they have other signals that are for women and children humans. They can describe us in great detail to one another. And that's only the very tip of the iceberg. Researchers are now compiling dictionaries in elephant, in dolphin, or trying to crack the code of sperm whalish. And we're realizing that animals are engaging in much more complex communication than we ever previously realized. And that's a window into their social behaviors.
0: It is. I mean, it opens up an unbelievable window. And you so correctly point out that this is a window that can either be used for good or perhaps for bad, and you talk about the case of bees again, which is an interesting one, Uh, but it is really in our hands to decide how we want to use this information that we learn.
3: Yes, so bees are A fascinating case because their language, which is vibrational and positional, is so different than ours. It's really hard for a human ear to decode honeybee language, but our computers can listen on our behalf. So you can use computer vision to study how bees are moving as they make sound You can use acoustics to record the sounds, you can combine those data sets, and then you start to discern patterns. And we've discovered a a couple hundred patterns of vocal signals made by honeybees. We know what some of those patterns mean. So there's a stop signal, for example. And of course, there's the famous waggle dance that bees use to communicate really complex map information about how to get to a nectar source. I mean, when I say complex, a honeybee can tell her sister's where to go for nectar, you know it might be over a mountain like across a river. These are really complex wayfinding languages. But what we're now able to do is not just decode and understand those languages, we're actually able to encode those vocal patterns into robots and start speaking back to the honeybees. And in the book I talk about the, a group of researchers in Germany that is using a honeybee robot to speak back to the hive and they've actually been able to issue specific commands to the honeybee hive using a robot, it doesn't always work and it's pretty rudimentary, but still, it's one example of where we've essentially broken the barrier of interspecies communication with other species. And that leads to the possibility, some scientists believe it's a probability that within a decade or two, we are going to create a zoological version of Google Translate will be able to speak back to other species.
0: Which in in of itself, I mean, it it is remarkable. Um, And then there's the ethics of this, right? I mean, there is an ethical question here that once you understand or once you know what they're saying to each other, that can either be used um, to better protect those species or to better control and harm those species in some ways. And I guess that therein lies the ethical issue.
3: Yeah, there are many layers of ethics. these technologies could be used to develop a sense of kinship, deeper relationships and appreciation for other species as non-human persons. But worryingly, these technologies might also be used to further domesticate or exploit other species or even used in precision hunting. So these are, these are very, very worrisome questions in an era of biodiversity loss and threats to lots of species. And I I wanted the book to call attention to that. And I give some examples in the book of where I think we really need to pay close attention. Another related issue is data. Right now, a lot of this acoustic data is harvested without consent. The assumption is no one owns the data and other species are not protected by the sorts of privacy rules that uh, you and I would be protected by. Moreover, often this data is collected from Indigenous territories, and it, this overlooks the existence of Indigenous data sovereignty, where Indigenous communities have asserted ownership of data collected from their territories, be it um, biological or acoustic or other data. And so I, I also open up those issues in the book. And, and my my goal here is to bring these issues to the attention of the general public, but also the environmental conservation community, to spark a debate about how we need to overhaul our ethics for essentially a a new digital era of environmental conservation.
0: Yeah, what, what amazes me about it is just, and you point this out correctly, that for many, many, many generations, scientists simply ignored those who said, we're hearing things out there and there's communication going on. That's probably far beyond what we understand it to be. Uh, Our ability to now use technology, both to record it and then to decipher it is in of itself remarkable. Where do we go next? Do you think what's the next frontier here in the next little while, the next few years?
3: Mm -hmm. Great question. There's a scientific frontier and a conservation frontier. The scientific frontier is exploring the intricacies of non-human communication Bats are a great example. Um, one researcher I talk about in the book, Mirjam knornstild a bat researcher in Germany who studies the greater sack-winged bat, a very cute and interesting bat. And so her work and uh, that of um, other researchers has revealed that bats vocalize in such complex ways. We now know that they remember favors hold grudges their calls identify individuals kin and family and parents baby bats babble at their parents much like human human parents yeah they baby bats learn language by babbling just like um, our babies do and so now we're, we're looking at okay what's the next step probably testing whether bats have symbolic communication that's the scientific frontier but there's also a conservation frontier that can do a lot of good for using these technologies to protect these species.
0: Yeah, I mean, for instance, we could learn why honeybee populations collapse if we better understood how they speak to each other, right?
3: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And we could also be using these technologies, actually they're already being used, to locate endangered species to protect them. We're doing this off the east coast of Canada with North Atlantic right whales. Bioacoustics-based protection there has actually massively reduced ship strikes for endangered right whales. And that may be the turning point in saving that population. And beyond that, scientists are also using acoustics as a form of music therapy. They call it acoustic enrichment for underwater environments like coral reefs. And that is also showing a lot of success. It won't solve all of the world's biodiversity issues, but it is a tool, a new tool in the conservation toolkit. And it's been around us all this time. Karen Backer, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
0: This is uh, an interesting trip that this reporter has just taken. Of course, you know, there's been a lot of tension between Taiwan and China these days. Uh, We talked a bit today about panda diplomacy. At least that's still going. Uh, Taiwan has welcomed a pair of experts from China actually to help with an ailing panda. In a rare opportunity for contact between those two sides. Uh, the two experts arrived Tuesday after Taipei's zoo's Tuan Tuan, uh, suspected, suspected of having a malignant brain tumor, took a turn for the worse. They brought in these experts. Uh, it's part of something called Panda Diplomacy. They were given to Taiwan in 2008, uh, Tuan Tuan and Yuan Yuan. Um, I actually spent, needless to say, if you're a correspondent in China, you spend time covering the Panda story. So I've been to the Panda sanctuary in Sichuan and it is quite the sight and of course china uh, maintains a certain control over these pandas even when they're gifted to you uh so they're the animals themselves their offspring are still technically to be looked after by china so thus this invitation uh, of course they also have expertise at it so it helps uh but back to where we were going with this, you know, China, of course, still claims Taiwan as its own. It pushes a strict one China policy on the world community to avoid any kind of diplomatic recognition of Taiwan. And its future, of course, has been the topic of much speculation since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You know, big country invades smaller country that it considers part of its, part of its own, uh, as we've seen uh, in the Eastern Europe as well. Beijing was furious when US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taipei earlier this year. They followed with the chinese army so the pla's largest ever military exercises around taiwan sending warships and planes across that dividing line it's only 180 kilometers the strait between where those two are uh, so they sent them across the dividing line separating taiwan and continental asia so what is the mood like as Ty- the taiwanese gaze across the strait at an increasingly aggressive and ambitious china under xi jinping Toronto Star correspondent Joanne Chu is back from Taiwan. She's also the author of a book called China Unbound, which I recommend, and she joins me now. Joanna, thank you so much for your time tonight.
2: Hi, Ben. Thanks so much for having me.
0: What an incredible time to go to Taiwan for this kind of story. Uh, what, did you, what did you set out to find out?
2: Mm-hmm. So I actually completed my trip uh, by mid-September, and I was prepping for it all of August. Um, to try to be as efficient as possible because after what was then still a mandatory four nights in quarantine i only had five full reporting days to report yeah. five stories as well as two videos and a podcast so i had to be really efficient especially since we were so ambitious we wanted to explore the taiwan story from as many angles as possible because i heard more you know, average Canadians talk about Taiwan in the last year than I have in my whole life before that.
0: Yeah, so it was that was evident. interesting. Yeah, you yeah. mentioned that in one of your articles that uh, that the Taiwanese themselves say they've answered more questions from journalists the last year than they had mm-hmm. in, in memory before. So there's a lot of interest, obviously. Yeah,
2: yeah but I think there's a lot of interest, but people because Taiwan has flown under the radar for so long, there's not a huge breadth of public knowledge about Taiwan definitely a lot of curiosity, but we really wanted to have a series, so stories coming out once a week, um, exploring things like the complexity of Taiwanese identity, um, how Taiwanese officials, even here in Canada, I got a scoop saying that one, her social media was likely hacked, right, and tying that to what I learned in Taiwan about how they've been facing such a disinformation campaign and just incessant cyber attacks from China and how tying it all together, we see it here in Canada, definitely Taiwan sees it in Taiwan. The piece that just came out was one where I visited the headquarters of TSMC, uh, the world's leader in microchips. Yeah.
0: (laughs) You might not know them, but you probably have one in your house somewhere, right? Yeah, No,
2: in your phone, if you have an Apple phone, uh, Yeah. yeah, you rely on Taiwan's technology industry? And all of these questions are wrapped up in people's insecurities and worries about the security of Taiwan, this um, relatively small island, even though 23 million people live there. But compared to mainland China, 1.4 billion, they are definitely David Goliath situation. And after uh, US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited for just one day in August, Beijing responded so forcefully surrounded the island, flew missiles uh, in a show of anger over her visit, saying that it kind of, Endorse the idea that Taiwan is its own country, basically.
0: Yeah. Um, so what what sense did you get from the? Because we read a lot about what's happened, and you you picture this sort of island under siege, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because of its size, where it is, it's so close to mainland China. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being in Fujian, and your phone would sometimes link into Taiwanese yeah. phone signals, right? It's oh, it's wow. that it's that close. Yeah. Um, what was the What was the atmosphere like? What was the mood like amongst the Taiwanese now after this mm-hmm. year under the spotlight?
2: Yeah, so one of our stories was talking about local-level elections in Taiwan. So they're electing their mayors and city councillors this month. And I spotlighted a politician who was campaigning on a small island controlled by Taiwan that was less than 20 kilometers from mainland China. It was actually, it's actually much closer, the island of Matsu, to mainland China than it is to Taiwan. But it is so um, just... Staunchly Taiwanese and people there are so dedicated to strengthening and practicing their democracy, mm-hmm. but they're within eyesight of mainland China, where things couldn't be more different. Um, so, but I talk to people, including people who live so close to China, and to them, um, they they can make jokes about things. Um, they say that oh, people are suddenly realizing kind of Taiwan's sort of predicament, but they've been living under this existential threat from Beijing
0: decades. Now, so much was made after the invasion of Ukraine, uh, right. because, of course, it's a larger country invading a smaller neighbor, um, yeah. that this would be a parallel. And, and a lot of mm-hmm. attention was being paid to Taiwan, obviously, during yeah. the during uh, the pandemic, the height of the pandemic. But also during after the invasion of, of Ukraine, there was an awful lot of talk mm-hmm. about. Is it a fair comparison? Because I think what you pointed out is that a lot of people there didn't really see the parallels between the two or couldn't really picture it
2: hmm. Yeah, I think it's a useful comparison, but definitely not a neat parallel at all. Actually, the number of people who were concerned about Ukraine, and who had, you know, planned these kind of solidarity marches in Taiwan in support of Ukrainians, um, it was more than I expected. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of times when people in the West want to compare, you know, X with Y, you know, both sides feel like it's not a really useful comparison. But In Taiwan, um, a podcast I produced with Enoch Wu, um, he was a former Special special Force soldier who wanted to do all of these workshops and is offering all of these workshops to prepare civilians for any sort of disaster. So I was watching as they were learning how to um, treat bullet wounds, how to carry unconscious people to safety. I think Taiwan has always tried to do its best to... Um, strengthen their own society and democracy, their own economies, like that was a proactive way to do something, right? To become stronger in the face of all of these threats from Beijing, which some people called basically a bully. Um, but with Ukraine and what happened, I think more average people, thousands of people showed up to these crisis training events. Um, you know, other organizations had, you know, shooting and um, even some basic combat trainings. Um, Because they didn't want to feel that sense of disempowerment. They wanted to be able to do something. Um, So there is, I was surprised that while people have a pretty like positive attitude and think, oh, I can put things into my own hands by, you know, working in the semiconductor industry, making sure that Taiwan's technology is so useful to the world, that the world would not turn its back in Taiwan. And then there's people who are, well, if I learn crisis first aid, I can help my fellow Taiwanese people. So this, there's a sense of, I think, growing awareness and willingness from some people to, to talk about these issues more when before I think there was more. And there's still a sense of kind of numbness to this constant kind of weird position Taiwan is in where it's a country, but not recognized as a country, but completely behaves and operates and self-governs like an independent nation but doesn't it's not in the UN it's not in the WHO during the pandemic
0: tell me a bit about the semiconductor thing cuz i think mm-hmm. just the, if, if people understood and i think people might know this story but one company produces something like 60% of the world's semiconductors it's in taiwan mm-hmm. and in some way it's considered sort of like the iron dome their iron dome is this semiconductor industry cuz if if it ever were disrupted the world's economy has kind of come to a bit of a halt. Mm-hmm. Um, how is that seen from when, from inside?
2: Mm-hmm. So we're talking about TSMC, um, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Co., which seems like such like a a kind of bland yeah. name yeah. for yeah. a company that's so important to the world technology. And it has controls over 60% of the microchips that power basically every single piece of tech you may own. But in addition to that, it has a near monopoly on the very tiniest microchips that are you know, barely visible to the naked eye. And these are key to the future development of smart cars, 5G, AI. So very, very crucial to how the world will look in the coming years. I think this company um, had the foresight in the 1980s to focus almost purely on making the chips using designs from global clients. So some of their major clients are Apple, Qualcomm. It's called Taiwan's Silicon Shield. Pretty commonly referred to it as such because people feel, and I t- spoke with people in government, environmentalists across society, it's kind of a given that, oh yeah, of course, TSMC is crucial to Taiwan's national security and future. Because if China blockades Taiwan, if China doesn't even shoot uh, a bullet in Chen army, it could still bring the world's tech kind of to a standstill because products from TSMC won't be able to come in and out. Um, so talking to people there, talking to engineers there, which was, I think, the most interesting, they feel that if um, not just the threat of military... Takeover of Taiwan, but if a country like the U.S., which is pumping billions into the semiconductor industry, if another country catches up to Taiwan's level, um, they feel that Taiwan will have a much more vulnerable place in the world, that it might not get that U.S. military support um, that is kind of enjoyed um because of its status they told me
0: interesting yeah i mean it's a, it's an interesting way of looking at it it is such a uh-huh. crucial industry and they are such a crucial part of it yeah, um, but to engineers. think they see they see it as a shield is is an interesting way yeah. of looking at it uh, before just and, and before because we both worked in china we saw today the cbc mm-hmm. announced they're closing their china bureau yet another bureau gone um mm-hmm. i believe their correspondent's actually going to taiwan um it's interesting though i mean what always strikes me about it is it's unfortunate that that uh, the Chinese guy at Beijing these days seems so reluctant to let anyone report there mm-hmm. anymore? Because I always felt that those the people who spent any time there had a much more nuanced view of it, and that's important yeah. these days. That's important now. So, how do you feel about it?
2: I'm not even sure if any Canadian journalist is left in China full time, but China's been very hostile to. The foreign media, the Foreign Correspondents Club of China collects reports, um, some anonymized reports from correspondents year by year. And it's gotten really, really bad. Friends tell me, like, um, encountering violence from plainclothes police just in the course of their reporting is definitely something they just expect to happen
0: yeah and it's a, it's a shame no, it's just i just yeah. feel like it's shame because because china has there is a story to tell there that isn't all bad you know i mean no. it's, it's all it often is but it isn't always mm-hmm. and, and, and good, the people you
2: know. yeah and if you live in china you will be able to see the good parts of it it's harder when you're not living there when you're living there day to day you see all the frustrations and kind of dystopic parts mm-hmm. up close but you also need the food you meet the people you make friends um, you hear story ideas from people Um, from all walks of life. And definitely when I was working there, maybe 20% of my stories were about human rights and politics. And by pushing out uh, foreign journalists, China is actually blocking the world from being able to see more of what Chinese life is like.
0: Yeah, it's the balance. I think you're absolutely right. Joanna Chu, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time.
2: Yeah, thank you. And um, you can catch
0: our View from Taiwan
2: stories on the Star.
0: (laughs) I'm not sure if you saw this yesterday, but Saskatchewan has introduced a bill that aims to unilaterally amend the Canadian Constitution to say the province has jurisdiction over its natural resources and to allow it to control or at least delineate more control of the development of non-renewable natural resources, forestry resources and electrical generation. Mitch McAdam is the director of Saskatchewan's constitutional law branch. He says the province has solid grounds to amend the Constitution.
3: Of course the
2: federal
0: government could challenge the, uh, the bill in court, but we feel very confident that um, the province has the jurisdiction under section 45 of the Constitution Act 1982 to unilaterally amend its own
2: constitution.
0: Now, if this sounds a bit familiar, it's because it's the same section Quebec relied on when it unilaterally changed the constitution to make French its official language earlier last year, or earlier this year, rather. Now, the act would set up a tribunal to determine the economic harms caused by the federal environmental, federal environmental policies. We've been talking about that a lot over time. Certainly, opinion, or, opinion is divided, depending where you are. Uh, but here's what has some doing a little bit of head scratching tonight. You see, the province really already has jurisdiction over natural resources, according to Section 92A, which stipulates that each province's legislature can enact laws related to exploring non-renewable resources and developing, conserving, and uh, managing non-renewable and forestry resources. So the opposition NDP in saskatchewan is already criticizing the bill saying it's essentially copy and pasting copy and pasting would already exists in the constitution so how true is that well joining me now is the minister of justice and attorney general of saskatchewan bronwyn Eyre. she's also the mla for saskatoon stonebridge dakota thanks for staying up late thanks for your time
4: tonight no issue at all thanks very much great to be here
0: so uh I, I always you know I noticed your, your quotes yesterday. You said this is not about Fed bashing for kicks. Uh so what <laughs> is it about? What is it about?
4: Well it it really is about um standing up for what is in the Constitution. You you already mentioned uh, Section 92 and uh, 92A uh, of the of the Constitution already states that we have exclusive jurisdiction as a province uh, over natural resources and 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 other property and civil rights and, and, other, and other areas. That the, the point is, this isn't just symbolic. We feel um, this has real legal weight. To amend Saskatchewan's constitution, as you said, through Section 45 of the Constitution Act 1982, which does provide that a provincial legislature can unilaterally amend its own constitution. As you said, Quebec did it. The prime minister said it was in the powers of provinces to do it in the bill. We're basically listing our our core provincial powers and and we are going to refer then federal policies and and regulation and legislation um, to an independent economic tribunal and really trumpet to the country, to the federal government, to the courts, that that exclusive jurisdiction that is in section 92 and section 92a that it means something and and we do feel that this will have a legal effect and and weight in the future because findings of the tribunal will be legally admissible Evidence of economic harm could form part of a reference to the Court of Appeal. It could buttress evidence for an interlocutory injunction. A crucial test for an interlocutory injunction is irreparable harm. So really this takes a stand for what constitutionally is called interjurisdictional immunity and, and against the federal government using paramountcy, federal paramountcy, as a legal hammer which basically knocks down provinces' jurisdiction every time they conflict. You know, the feds have exclusive jurisdiction, and the provinces have exclusive jurisdiction. This amends right. the Constitution to to embed that in and, and make it more than symbolic, really part of our Constitution.
0: I, I guess if, if, you, if we put it in layperson's terms, the real problem here... Is federal climate policies, right? I mean, that's that's the that's what you're trying to address here. We saw it with the carbon tax. Obviously, the Supreme Court found differently on that one. Um, but this is really where the rubber hits the road for you, is it not?
4: Well, it, it's many things. I mean, it is absolutely um, the carbon tax, and, and certainly it's, it's economically dishonest to suggest that carbon tax rebates somehow offset the totality of, of what to Saskatchewan is an $111 billion harm uh, from federal policies. Um, um, we'll, talk you know, the, we'll talk about those
0: numbers. We'll talk about those numbers. But yes, but go they, on. But, I'm but, sorry ministry, to interrupt. The ministry,
4: the ministry of Finance. You know, there are Ministry of Finance numbers in Saskatchewan. But, but let's also not Forget, businesses don't get rebates. Those who don't file taxes don't get rebates. The federal government is withholding hundreds of millions of dollars from SaskPower power in carbon tax, which it could use to invest in renewables and power security in the province. The, the federal parliamentary budget officer found this past January that the carbon tax has left at least 60% of Canadian households financially burdened, worse off, you know, including when the impact on the wider economy is added to the, into the equation and indirect costs are passed on by businesses. No surprise. But, but we, have, we have many other examples, Ben. I mean, the federal fuel standard, Carbon tax number two, that's, that's set to take effect next year, an impact of $700 million a year on both gas consumption and diesel consumption in Saskatchewan. That's just one set of regulations, not offset by anything. Huge impact on retail, rail, the egg sector, trucking, manufacturing, and, of course, heating your home and fueling your car. Or, and this is of, of huge importance to Saskatchewan, the Clean Electricity Regulations, federal. No fossil fuel generated power by 2035, which, right. as South Power has said, is literally impossible in this province. That amounts to, to people freezing in the dark. It is incredible in terms of the impact, social and economic, that that, that set of regulations would have, and, and others. That's what this is really right. about, is quantifying that economic harm.
0: Right. I mean, I mean of course, the economic harm... Can be debated. I mean, they. Were, you know, Trevor Tome was quite a well-respected economist. Basically, called that 111 billion dollars uh, incredibly weak. Uh, I think he pointed out there were some things left out. I mean, but I think everyone admits that that these climate policies are meant to do a certain amount of economic harm because they're meant to wean people off fossil fuel consumption. That's the whole point, right? Do you feel like, in in this sense, that that um, I mean, I was thinking the other day if you know we see the Alberta Sovereignty Act. I don't mean to compare the two of them, but, but you know, I saw uh, Danielle Smith today post something on Twitter. where she showed both of them side by side. And I thought, um, isn't that interesting as well? But say, you know, say a province like BC, for instance. And this is just hypothetical. But say a province like BC said, you know, we don't, we're not going to take any more fossil fuel trade. You know, for, forget, forget uh, transporting fossil fuels across our territories. They're going to damage. You know, climate change will damage our coastline. It's valuable, and so forth. I just sometimes I wonder where. where where this all ends up. I mean, I think we can talk seriously about provinces' concerns over the environment, over climate change policies, uh, but it feels like sometimes these are sort of pushing them with a lot of pretty incendiary language over the kinds of losses you're looking at. I'm just not sure $111 billion really adds up.
4: Well, I mean, first of all, I would love to, to talk to that economist and debate him number by number. I mean, this is Ministry of Finance number, a Ministry of Finance generated number in the province of Saskatchewan. And if you can say it's incredibly weak, I've heard it's because it's offset by carbon tax rebates. And and, and so I I think that that is the extent of the argument. It is that it's offset by carbon tax rebates. And if we in the province of Saskatchewan can't trust the Ministry of Finance, then we have a major problem. I mean, this is not a political spin number. And as I say, if we talk about economic harm, and we talk about the fact that Saskatoon, where I, where I come from, which I represent, mm-hmm. is powered by the Queen Elizabeth Natural Gas Power Station. And we talk about 2035, no fossil fuel generated power in the province of Saskatchewan. That is a major problem. We have signaled that we are moving to SMRs. We have um, signaled that we are committed to wind and increasing solar and the rest of it. But we so you simply feel like you're doing your part not right? transition that quickly mm-hmm. by twenty thirty five. So it is an economic so, discussion and I, I do feel I have yet to see a counter, a real economic counter, other than that saying that num- those numbers are weak and there are carbon tax rebates. It is far deeper and far more damaging than that. And um, yeah. and, so, and, and, I, and I think that that, that that we have to be on. We talk about, you know, Quebec, as you referenced in your opening.
0: Right. Sure. They
4: did Section 45. They unilaterally amended. You know, Mr. Singh, as we know, has said, you know, only Quebec can unilaterally amend. but But, but when the West... Does it, and a province such as Saskatchewan raises these issues. Suddenly, it's destructive to the Federation. And I think that's partly where yeah. we're coming from, that we are, we are tired of the double standard. And we are tired of the contempt to ordinary people and workers and their livelihoods that some of these, these policies represent. And there is an economic harm. I think we all have to be clear on that. The federal government has admitted there's economic oh, harm to things such absolutely. as the federal fuel standard. But, how, there... but which, which, in which federation – do you see economic harm perpetrated on just well, one region on just one region? We were talking
0: about this a bit earlier, and I know you were the Minister of Energy previously, so you knew all these these files inside out um do you think you're, you're not you that these concerns have not been listened to because I think a lot of people outside of you know outside the prairie sometimes think oh it's just." You know, it's the usual Fed bashing, right? I mean, you you addressed it right away yesterday for obvious reasons. Um, do you feel like you've not your concerns have not been listened to? That people don't, really don't understand the sort of um, pain this will inflict, specifically on a province like Saskatchewan. Uh,
4: yes, I, I, I we do, and and as I said yesterday, I mean, it, it isn't about Fed bashing just for kicks. It's really just about asserting um, our our exclusive jurisdiction as the federal government has exclusive jurisdiction, our exclusive jurisdiction over, over natural resources. And you can say, well, that's already there. Uh, but I think the question then is, it hasn't really helped that it's there, because the federal government has continued to roll out programs and policies and regulations, carbon tax Federal fuel standard, clean electricity regulations. Now they're signaling fertilizer mandates, uh, the rest. All of these things are under the law unconstitutional under Section 92A. and, And as we've seen, Quebec has unilaterally amended its constitution to deal with things that relate to Quebec, the, Premier, the Prime Minister has referenced that provinces can do this, that it's within their it. power to do this. So we, we feel that we have um, obviously worked very, very hard to create an investment climate in Saskatchewan that is successful, that is bucking um, recession and challenges that other jurisdictions are facing. and and that we want to protect what we've achieved economically. We've worked hard to foster it, and it's not as if we haven't Worked with the federal government. I, I always raise the issue of, of methane. We have mm. methane equivalency, an agreement with the federal government on methane. We've reduced methane by 50%. We were called out, congratulated by Minister Gilbo last December. Very little known, almost not reported. Congratulated publicly for our efforts. Had nothing to do with the federal government. Had to do with our own efforts. And, right. and yet they don't share their data with us. They don't share their data with us. They acknowledge that we've reduced methane by 50% and then turn around and change the goalposts again. I think what this really has to do with, um, Ben, is is the notion of being part of a federation and, and really we, we, and questioning – is it not patriotic to ask for a fair deal? You know, is it not fair to rely on the strict interpretation of the of the division of powers under the Constitution and really ask that the federal government be an honorable partner? That to me it means being Canadian.
0: You you were a you were a journalist, so this is an obvious question for you. Is it worth the money? I mean, obviously this is going to end up in court. It feels like it's heading right to courts. And sometimes you think, well, the only people who are going to come out of this looking good are are the lawyers, and no offense, but uh, do you think this is a fight worth paying for?
4: Well, when we're dealing with one set of regulations alone, costing the province $700 million a year, and no rebate included, and I, I would like economists to weigh in on that one. I mean, sure. Federal Fuel Standard. I'm I'll, talking give, them your number. Talking I'll about, give them your number. <laughs> I would love to debate them on, on these numbers. <laughs> federal Fuel Standard, $700 million alone, right there. Um, I think it's it's worth the fight. And it's not, again, as if we relish the fight. It, it's about really doing everything we can to say we have Section 92. It's part of the constitution of this country. We're trying to assert this notion of interjurisdictional immunity. We're trying to assert what it means to have core powers and, and if need be, we will take numbers, quantified numbers, from an independent economic tribunal and say, you know, you, 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 you need proof for an interlocutory injunction. Here it is. Irreparable harm is one of the tests. $700 million. Or what about turning all the lights off in Saskatoon uh, because the, uh, the power plant that generates that power is, is fossil fuel generated? We're doing everything what? we can to, to transition. We've signaled SMR small modular reactors. We are doing everything we can, but it is literally impossible by 2035 to shut off the lights in the province of Saskatchewan. I think if you quantify that, and as social harm, as economic harm, and you say to a court, you know, look, we really do have these powers under the Constitution, remember that, and here's the harm that this represents, isn't that being part of the Federation? Isn't that honouring what's already in the Constitution and and really paying attention to what provinces have in their jurisdictions in, under the Constitution? I don't see that as very radical. I see it as embedding what's already there. And, and really standing up for what can benefit the country. That's what really right. this is about.
0: I imagine, I imagine at some point it'll be up to a court to decide. Bronwyn Era, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it.
4: Great pleasure. Thanks so much, Ben.